Hi, I'm Gary and this is episode 69 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be talking to ChargePoint operators about the charging networks in the UK. Before we start, I wanted to remind people that I have put an article out on the blog reiterating what I said in last week's episode about the arguments people are going to be putting forward regarding why we can't move to ban new fossil fuel car sales in 2030. If you're interested, please check it out. The links are in the show notes. Our main topic of discussion today is charge point operators. We've talked before on this podcast about the charging infrastructure in the UK, and indeed worldwide. The general consensus amongst a lot of EV owners is that unless you have a Tesla and access to the supercharging network, you're not going to have the best experience with charging. I think that a number of years ago that was probably true. However, the infrastructure is improving every single day. However, however, with the number of new EVs being bought and put on the road, this infrastructure lead is starting to narrow. More cars means more charges are needed in more places with more units and good pricing. At the end of last season, we did a whole episode about the price of charging. In that episode, we identified the fact that there are numerous schemes out there and that you can pay different amounts for your electricity depending on the type of charger, the method of payment, the speed of the charger. And obviously, this becomes a problem for people who are used to the one price per litre fossil fuel model that predominantly exists in that world. Yes, the price per litre can vary within a percentage by different providers, but it isn't anything up to three times the difference as it can be with EV charging. So today we're in discussion with a couple of the main charge point operators or CPOs in the UK to ask them a few questions about their networks, their pricing and their plans for the future. To get some idea about what the scale of things is that we're talking about, have you ever wondered just exactly how much electricity is dispensed at charge points in the UK? When I get the report from, from yesterday, um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have ticked over 25 million kilowatt hours. That's Tom Callow, head of external affairs for BP Chargemaster. He's referring to the total amount of electricity dispensed under the BP Chargemaster brand for public charging. That's a bit of an increase over last year. Now, just to give you a sense of growth, that's that's up from about 15 million last year. So that is just astronomical yeah. in terms of the growth. I had to ask how much the CPOs are paying for the electricity they distribute. We're, we're not buying energy anywhere near as efficiently as you know, a supermarket chain might be or, or another business at the moment. That's Ian Johnston from Osprey Charging. I'm the CEO of Osprey Charging, formerly Ingenie. So how much do they pay? It differs clearly region to region. Um, whilst we have a, a fixed price with us, Pyroctopus. Um, and again, you know, that, that relationship and that dynamic is becoming more and more complex as it becomes more innovative. So there's lots of conversation we're having a lot to us about what we can do there. I think there is this misperception that, that companies like us can kind of go out and buy energy at, um, you know, sort of like a tenth of the price of, of consumers. Um, <laughs> I, I, bro- broadly, um, you know, the average price that, that we'd probably be paying across um, – our network is, is is not a million miles away from from the kind of price that you're used to as a consumer to be honest and i mean a sort of an i don't mean a sort of a special overnight tariff i mean a consumer price tom callow says that cpos don't really get much of a discount for their electricity um and a lot of the reason for that is um is that obviously quite a bit of our charging now is high powered and, and higher power charging the, the energy costs for higher power charging do cost more um and you know, one of the reasons for that is obviously you're you're demanding more power to be available for you at any one time. So 
so you know with a you know the, the average home for example is sort of generally generally seen as, as being sort of a two kilowatt asset on the grid uh, sorry two kilowatt consumer on the grid as an average so yes we've got we've got 100 amp fuses in our you know in most modern homes and you know you could theoretically be sat there consuming 20 kilowatts of energy at home on various appliances but but most people don't do that most of the time and therefore there's this sort of belief that roughly speaking a home's probably going to be consuming about two kilowatts on average across say a housing estate or whatever so if you're an energy company providing that 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 connection you're saying well there's a you know, there's two kilowatts per house, there's 100 houses, that's 200 kilowatts. So if you think about our 150 kilowatt charges, for example, the effect for each one of those is, is a bit like saying we're going to put 75 homes on this site. So we need we need to sort of reserve that power to be available. And we need to reserve it all the time, by the way, because, you know, we, we can't just say that, you know, unlike sort of homes where most most people sort of use energy um, at a peak during the evening, you know, public charging is quite, quite flat generally. So we need that available all the time. So it certainly costs more to actually um, get that power to the site. So now we know how much CPOs pay for their electricity. Do they actually make money from it? There are, there's no CPO today that is breaking even or making money. I mean, the, 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 the cost of, of the infrastructure we're installing um, is, is significant, but it's growing as well. So mm. whenever... We launch a site that cost us maybe a hundred thousand pounds to put two fifty kilowatt charges in, as well as the, the 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 gratitude and the excitement that we get. We of course get people saying, well, "Why aren't there six chargers? Why aren't there ten? Why aren't they all three hundred and fifty kilowatts?" And we're we're over time we're deploying more more bigger sites with more chargers and faster chargers. But we've got to be clear that the the average usage of EV charging sites across the UK today depending on which data source you look at, is between one to two customers per day. So that leads to the whole subject of pricing. As we mentioned on our episode in pricing, there are almost as many different pricing models as there are charge point operators. Obviously, each CPO has sat and made a specific decision about why they want to price things their way. Now, I asked Tom Callow of BP Charge Master why he thought that having eight different prices for a single kilowatt hour of electricity was a good idea. I guess I'd align it to, to two things in, in one thing in, in my world of automotive, I suppose, in, in the wider world of automotive, and one thing outside, which is that there's something like, I don't know, 460, 500 different makes and model of car you can buy in the UK. You know, if you go through all the various sort of specs and whatever. So it's a, a bewildering choice of models, but most people just care about, you know, the one or two cars they might be looking at. Um, and similarly, say in the mobile phone space, I mean, I have a certain mobile phone tariff, but I don't know, there must have been 150 different options for me, even from the provider I'm with, you know, there must have been 100 odd options for me in terms of a tariff or a bundle or whatever to choose from. So I think it's a case of, you know, cho- choice isn't a bad thing, um, as long as people kind of realise that it's a choice and there's no, you're not being forced to do something. We don't claim to, to know more than anyone else. I mean, I, we, we may... I think we've got it right. I think we've got a, a good balance between the choice of access for different types of customer. And I think certainly on the um, on the on the fleet side, um, what's clear to us is that is that fleet customers really want um, you know access to a more of a service based model. And you know we've got fleet customers who have you know I'm trying to think of the biggest one, but it's probably got sort of 600 if you like user accounts with us. You know, and they, and they get one one monthly bill for all of that all of that charging. So it's looking at giving customers choice, which is always a good thing. But it's also allowing the higher volume users to benefit from lower prices. Um, there, are, there are customers of ours who um, 
who uh, who do something in in the magnitude of um, about forty five to fifty thousand miles a year of public charging mm-hmm. just on our network. I mean, I think the fact that they're doing 54, 45, 50,000 miles a year on public charging alone is very impressive. But the fact they're doing it on just our network is, is you know, really, really impressive, I think, for me. Um, so there's going to be people who really rely on it. And for those people, I think it's really important that we try and ensure that there isn't a huge disparity between the sort of average cost per kilowatt hour that they are going to be paying and the kind of pricing that you can expect on a domestic supply. Obviously, Osprey have taken a different tack with their pricing. Why is that? There's no doubt the market has been distorted by some of the very good schemes that put in to drive EV adoption, so where they're, mm. where they're subsidised charging, where there's free charging. Um, and you see the public reaction when those, when those schemes are, are removed. So I know there's been some of that going on in, in some of the Scottish uh, regions at the moment. There's a bit of uproar when the, those free charging regimes are removed. But the reality is that the market's been in a bit of a false position in terms of pricing for a while to, to assist adoption, which was the right thing to do at that point. So I think that, you know, where a lot of us sit now, which is at a kind of mid, mid-30s um, retail price, it, it does feel as if the market settled there. Now, two years ago when we were launching sites, there'd be a lot of reaction to us launching a public charging site at 36 pence a kilowatt. I, I must admit on the... The tens and tens of sites we've launched this year, I don't think I've seen one bit of feedback saying, you know, I'm not going to use you, you're, you're too expensive. I think people, there are people who will go months, maybe years without having to use a public charging site. And for those, of course, sometimes it is a shock to see a price beginning with a 30 something when they're used to paying, um, you know, 14 pence or, or less at home. So I, I think we're, we're the market seems to have stabilised a bit. At a point, you've got people ranging between 30 pence up to uh, maybe mid 40s. Um, and, it, and the feedback we're getting from customers is that that's a price that people are, are happy to pay. And they're happy to pay it because they understand that what they get for that price is a reliable charger that always works. And in, in most cases, they're hitting sites where there's more than one charger too. From an end user point of view, the Osprey tariff system is easy to understand, but it's also more expensive for most chargers. But Osprey, unlike BP Chargemaster, don't charge extra for high power charging, it's still 36 pence per kilowatt hour. Since we released the episode on the price of charging back at the end of last season, Osprey has released a new end user app for their network. With this app, the price is lower, it's down to 31 pence per kilowatt hour. This would seem to go against the strategy of one price for all charging that Osprey have, but there is a reason for it. I, I think we ha- it's absolutely essential that there is a very clear, simple pay-as-you-go price for everybody to use. But, and there is a but here, that is not what everybody wants. So in terms of a hierarchy of needs here, when now when we've deployed our network and we have regular customers, we get lots and lots of emails every week saying, please, please, can I have an account with you? Please, can you make it easier for me to get back receipts? Please, can I get a monthly statement? Please, can you help me with my expenses? And for those customers, and there's a lot of them because they're the high mileage users, these are the people that are really asking us for accounts. And, and they're the ones that are saying, why, why can we not have a better app? So um, we announced it alongside the name, but today we've actually launched publicly the app. Um, and as part of that, there will be a lower price for those people that pay on a monthly basis. And, you know, that it is... It is not that we're moving away from pay-as-you-go. It's that we have a lot of customers who are demanding it from us. So our base entry level is a pay-as-you-go price. 
And then for those people who wish and choose to elect to sign up to an account, to enjoy those benefits of VAT receipts, of statements, of you know, in, in-charging session updates, um, they will have an account with us through the app uh, and there will be a, a different price for those people who, who sign up and give us their details. Does ENC overall prices increasing with time? We believe that the pricing in the marketplace today is artificial, yes. Especially when we get to a market where we're all building the sorts of sites that you and I want to use, it, it just simply doesn't add up. And the reason why there aren't more charges in the ground today it is partly because of that. Uh, I think, you know, even, even if you look at the, 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 the major, the big operators in the marketplace, you've got, you know, um, <clears throat> who've been there for longer than us, some of the, they have uh, accounts and subscriptions with lower prices. But if you, if you do the simple maths on the cost of bidding in some of these the higher power charging sites, there is, you know, as I say, people are not profiteering from this at all. So I think we would expect that prices will rise. If you look at the continent, um, commonly you'll see people paying um, the equivalent to 50 pence kilowatt instead. Um, I think the, the reason why this conversation is a difficult one, though, Gary, is because it's so difficult to compare apples with apples. So when we when people complain about the pricing, so often they'll make the comparison to either what they pay at home or maybe what they enjoy under, for example, the Polar membership, which is you know, a brilliant membership scheme that thousands of people enjoy. Mm-hmm. But it, it isn't a like-for-like pay-as-you-go comparison. And if you then compare it to... Um, you know, a if you compare an Osprey fifty kilowatt charger to, for example, a uh, an Ionity three fifty kilowatt charger, or to um, a, a high power charging site in Europe, you're not comparing like for like. And and actually, that isn't the customer's fault. It's it's our fault. It's the industry's fault. You know, we have to get to a point where there's a really clear and simple price where where it, it's accepted that this is a pay as you go price. I, I'm an I'm an anonymous customer. I'm not signing up here. Um, and I, I choose to engage on this basis because I only intend to use this infrastructure occasionally, as and when I do. Maybe it might be once every quarter, maybe once a year. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we've got to do more to educate drivers on the different types of way you, could, you can um, engage with the charging networks. But at the same time, we're trying to balance and make it as simple as possible. One of my pet hates when it comes to chargers is when new charge points go in and it's a single unit. And this causes problems for two main reasons. One, if someone's using it, you're stuck until they're finished. But two, if the unit isn't working, you're hosed. You're completely hosed. But you've got a plan B charger, right? Right? One example given for why single units are often put in is because the local grid can't cope with the increased power requirements. But I'm sure you've seen examples of single units from one operator being installed near multiple units from another. There must be loads of examples, but just let me give you three. The Osprey charger at Wincanton was authorised for a double install by the local planners. I read the planning application myself. However, only one went in due to grid issues. But literally across the road, Genie Point put in a double header at their Morrison store there. In Fleet, Hampshire, which will be handy for fully charged live next year, Polar installed a single unit in a Travelodge car park. This car park was situated next to a Starbucks in which Instavolt then installed two of their 62.5 kilowatt units. In Wokingham, Reading, there is a polar charger at the Doubletree Hotel there. It's a single unit. And literally 80 metres away, on the other side of the car park, there is a Tesla supercharger with 16 150 kilowatt superchargers. 
So why can some CPOs put multiple units in and others can't or don't? I'm really pleased you've asked this question. Ian Johnson. To be absolutely categorically clear, we do not have a policy of seeking to install only a single charger at any of our sites. That is not the logic, that's not the intent, and it's not our strategy at all. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you do not need to spend long driving an EV to, to know that fear, that panic, when you approach a site, when you're hoping to God that the site is clear and that someone is not sat on a single charger. So we would be yeah. mindless, and we wouldn't have got to where we are today if we'd taken that approach to market. Of the sites that we've deployed today, Many of them, or the first kind of big rollout we have was the Marston's pub estate. Um, and clearly, we are restricted at each site in terms of the power that we can deliver to that demise. And what's really interesting is that if typically, if you look to secure more than around 130 kilowatts to a site, and we need um, more than that to, to deploy 250s. I know it's not linear on the maths, but because obviously we, we provide AC connectors as well to our units. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, there's a there's a pretty much a 60% chance you'll you'll have some power, but there's a 40% chance that you won't have enough to do that. Now, to therefore, your only option then is to build a substation. So you are building a, a 15 square meter substation that needs a 100-year lease with the DNO. So part of the reason many of the Marston's hubs only have a single charger today is because at that moment in time we it has not been physically possible to deliver sufficient power for more than one charger now the good news is that clearly we like you and the other customers we want there to be as many chargers as we can at sites so we have a number of uh, two charger sites where we have gone back and we've invested in more grid so that we can increase the size of two charger sites there is a long list of single charger Marston sites where we will be going back starting in December and adding second chargers because we absolutely agree that it's not what customers need for the future infrastructure. Mm-hmm. On many, if you look conversely at the retail parks where we're, we're very strong as well, in most cases there you'll see at least two chargers. And the reason is because the retail parks are very different land environments the grid infrastructure in and around retail parks is, is very different. So we have a greater chance there of securing power. Or indeed, when you see us going into new build retail parks, which we do a lot of, of course, we're in at the very start and we can secure the power we need from the substation. And in many cases, our cabling goes in before the car park goes in. But, but just to, to be clear, so we do not set out to install single charger sites. Um, I would hope that most of all the sites we deploy over the next 12 months and going forward will have at least two chargers. Um, I think it was important for, for us and for Marston's to really get out as many sites as we could. So if we had a choice between only deploying a single charger site or not deploying it, we thought the right thing to do was to deploy it. I think mm-hmm. one of the downsides of that is it's led to some people thinking maybe that Osprey is a, a single charger network. That is not the case. Yeah, any industry has to sort of start somewhere. And you learn lessons along the way. Tom Callow. Um, I think, I mean, th- firstly, I think we, um, it was certainly with the 50 kilowatt units to, to sort of start a strategy that we would we would sort of create a distributed charging network. So effectively, we'd end up with more charging locations. So you'd effectively always end up closer to a 50 kilowatt charger. But yes, it might, it might be a single unit rather than a double unit at the moment. So you'd have to travel uh, less distance and you'd be closer to one, but you, you, you might actually find this one 
and then you'd have to, you know, there's, there's another one that's two miles away and it's a single unit again. So rather than having two on the same exact same footprint, you might end up with, um, you know, with two in close proximity. And I mean, there's an example of that, let's say on, um, you know, the M1 at junction 25, um, you know, up near Nottingham, you know, there's, there's two, we've got two 50 kilowatt units, you know, both within, I don't know, half a mile, whatever it is, a, a one, you know, 60 seconds drive from the M1 junction. Um, Yep, yep and, I've used them both. Yeah, yep. and you know, I mean that that sort of thing is um, it's 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 quicker to effectively deploy that kind of infrastructure um, than effectively wait for a say a grid upgrade to put say two two high powered units down, two fifty units down at a single site, I suppose. So so it's about sort of speed of, of rollout. Now, I'm not suggesting that you know single fifty kilowatt units are are the charging strategy going forward necessarily. Um, there are areas where um, you know we put single units down and they were bluntly used maybe once a day now if, if you've got a single unit and it's used once a day i mean what you're not seeing is clearly people that that might have charged if there was a second unit i suppose but but broadly if it's it's being used once a day it's probably enough at that point you know you probably if you put a second unit down it probably wouldn't get used at all um and indeed i think the you know from an investment point of view it's it's almost disappointing when you see you know if you look at sort of say that map and you click on the charger and it says you know it was last used you know x hours ago you know um, that's one thing. But when you click on it and it says it was last used five, six days ago, you sort of think, isn't that a waste? Isn't that a waste of investment to have a charge that's sat there that's not even being used once a day? It's it's more about sort of the you know the business case because you, you know power more power is always available at the cost, generally speaking. Um, I mean, tech supercharges are a bit different in my view because the the supercharger network isn't a business. If that makes sense, it's not. It's it's it supports. It's a very good way of supporting Tesla's car sales, and that's it's a. Yeah, it's a brilliant thing. It, it works fundamentally well. It's incredibly slick in terms of the, the integration it has with the vehicle. Um, but I think it's 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 challenging to compare the supercharger network from an investment case point of view with any other public charging network. And obviously, Tesla superchargers don't fall into public charging sort of under under law um, because it's not a standalone. It's not trying to sort of make money from from the supercharger network. And I, I know I know sort of Tesla have said that publicly. They said it's not a, it's not a, a profit center for us. Circling back to the second part of my pet hates chargers that are not working. If you're in a single unit and there's a problem, then you're stuck, metaphorically. CPOs generally have a fleet of maintenance engineers rushing around the country sorting out problem chargers. As a general rule, they try to get chargers fixed within 24 hours. But why is it that some chargers can be out of order for weeks at a time? One of the, one of the complexities around this is obviously, um, you know, you're talking about polar. I mean, is, is actually one of the complexities is, is around ownership. Um, and it's something that came up in a, in a roundtable recently, which is that um, as a business, we've obviously got the, the Polar Network and we've also got the, the Charge Your Car Network, um, which is sort of increasingly being, um, if you like, sort of upgraded and integrated um, uh, so that that network over time probably sort of diminished slightly. But um, ownership is a really important thing to consider. And it's not just us as a network that has this, this um, sort of legacy challenge. And certainly with new infrastructure that we're rolling out, it's mainly owned and operated by us. And that makes things easier to go and sort of fix it immediately, et cetera. Um, but where you've got the charging infrastructure that's owned by a third party, sort of legacy infrastructure, for example, which is often often the more problematic infrastructure, um, actually bluntly getting permission to actually um, fix a problem. You know, we can remotely resolve a lot, of, you know, probably 80% of things anyway. Um, but in terms of a physical fix, um, you'll then need permission from the owner of that, of that asset, which can get, which can take time, which is frustrating for us as much as it is for, for users, to be honest with you. We're, I'm... Going very honest, we, we've had some some real challenges, I think, um, in scale up um, because we we did sort of expand so quickly. 
Um, and we you know we know we know, for example, and we hear that you know, um, I think call waiting times have been have been unacceptably long recently. Um, and we've invested a lot in our people, as in you know, in more people um, and processes. And we've got a much better telephony system now in place to be able to handle that inbound volume. So we are working towards you know a target of you know something like ninety five percent of calls being answered within two minutes, for example. But yeah, I, I think the the reliability point is so important. And you know, we're 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 about we're, we're not at ninety nine percent, which is I think where where people want want to see us. They want to see us at ninety nine plus percent, frankly, and that's I'm sure what government wants. Um, at the moment, we're we're about ninety five um, in terms of sort of overall availability uptime, which you know is not good enough because the you know that four percent four or five percent is makes a difference to people, you know. Um, and if you're in that four or five percent, it's it could be the difference between you know seeing a relative, missing a flight. Um, you know, it could be really important. It could be that you're doing a convenience charge and you can just carry on and you don't really care. But we're aware that that has a that has a real impact on people's lives. So you know, we we don't take it lightly when infrastructure doesn't work let's let's put it that way remember that cpos who've put units on customer premises such as osprey chargers at marston pubs have put them there with an intention to entice customers to that location to make use of the facilities me and my, my peers i think we're always surprised when this is raised as a major bugbear because if you look at the the major operators today you know the, the top four or five who are really rolling out um charging infrastructure across the uk we all have, we're all very professional businesses, we're very well funded and, and it's not in our interest to have a charger down even for, for, for five minutes, let alone for a number of days. So I do think it's a story of two halves here. I think, you know, the major operators, which, which Osprey and the others sit within, um, we are absolutely obsessed with trying to have the best customer service in the market. So I, I think there's a legacy hardware issue um, and there are people who went into the market much earlier than Osprey and the others um, and you did a brilliant thing for the whole EV adoption movement. But but I think, you know, when there's legacy hardware in the car park, um, that, that's probably where the problem sits. Because from our perspective, you know, our availability is above 99% all the time. And I'm sure my, my peers and the competitor CPOs would say that too. The other factor here, it comes back to the landlords. So if you are a Marston's or a Morrison's and, you know, you've, you've got much of the power in the, in the legal negotiation here, one of the things you're absolutely going to insist on is that you are not left with a white elephant in your car park. So in all, all of our contracts with all of our landlords, we are absolutely held to account that the availability will be kept to a certain SLA. Um, and in many cases, the, the requirements placed upon us are increasing with every deal we do with the landlord. So I think, again, as you, as you see the, the rollout in, in local authority and private estates, um, you're only going to see more and more contracted SLAs, which ourselves and our peers have to keep to. So I, I, I agree there is an issue with charges being out of service, but I am very surprised if you are seeing that in the major CPOs today. I'll be staggered if any CPOs is allowed to get away with it happening on, on a, a, a modern or recent site with a local authority or a, a, a retailer. Finally, I wanted to talk about why it is that despite the fact that new charges are rolling out on a pretty much daily basis, there are still areas of the country that seem to be a bit of a charging wasteland. Uh, Mid Wales, North Yorkshire and Northumberland are specific examples. Indeed, in a recent tweet sent out by BP Chargemaster showing upcoming high power charger installs in the next 6 to 12 months, these areas are still lacking new chargers. Remember that for most CPOs, they're bidding on and implementing charging at customer sites. 
These customers could be Booth's or Ballantine's gyms in the case of Instavolt, Miller and Carter and Marks and Spencer's in the case of BP Chargemaster, or Marston's pubs in the case of Osprey. They're limited by the locations that these companies exist at. Uh, for BP, it's a little easier because they can now add charges in at their company-owned sites, which account for about a third of the petrol stations that are BP branded. So what is the actual install strategy? Our number one priority at the moment is rolling out fast charging. Tom Callow. We are not stopping doing anything else, but we are um, we have that as our number one priority is developing an ultra-fast charging network. So um, we've currently got the largest public ultra-fast charging network in the UK as of, as of today, um, and we want to make sure that 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 network grows significantly, you know, because the number of units today is looks looks tiny compared to what people might expect, um, but it's going to grow into the hundreds uh, and eventually thousands, and that's just with ultra fast charging, um, till you know, to 20, up to twenty thirty. Um, so that's the priority, and it's certainly um, focused uh, on, and I say focused on on the BP four court estate, BP re- retail sites. Um, and specifically the company-owned sites, again, is a priority because it's, it's easier for us to target those sites first. So, you know, blunt, bluntly, any, any, you know, any of BP's company-owned forecourts, uh, you know, retail sites, um, that can have this technology deployed, um, will have it deployed. Um, so yeah. we're, 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 we're making sure that we don't just take a sort of a city-centric approach or, or, a, or a strategic road network-centered approach. It's, it's going to be a blended solution. Um, I think in terms of... Um, you know the, the strategy for locations. The the, for, the the retail sites work very well because they're already in very good locations. Um, as I said, you know I said to people before, the early days of EV charging rollout were largely driven by public funding, government funding, um, putting charges in public areas. You know, in sort of public sector areas. Um, the challenge with that is most people don't necessarily know where they are. So the early the earliest infrastructure around the back of a council office somewhere. You know, most people won't know where that is as a, as a local user. But even if you were the, the most dedicated customer of, say, Shell, you probably know where your local BP forecourt is, whether you ever use it or not. You know, for example, so they're, they're sort of these retail sites tend to be well known, well well known, visible locations, and that's a key reason why they work very well for, for providing EV charging alongside the convenience offers they have on site. Um, so those locations work really well. Um, clearly, strategic road network needs um, you know charging prioritised. You know, it's it's important that, that people who are traveling on longer distances on that strategic road network have confidence that they can charge on those longer journeys um, but we're also very conscious that you know rural areas can't get left behind so we are over investing in some rural areas where the business case is is um is not as strong as it might be in say central london because we know that that is providing a useful service for customers so for example in say mid wales i think we're probably still the only charging companies invested in rapid charging mid wales for example we are also um, developing uh, rapid charging hubs, both public and non-public. So when I say non-public, some of those will be dedicated for fleet use um, because, frankly, you know, in urban areas, particularly in, in very concentrated city areas, um, the biggest need for rapid charging will come from higher mileage and fleet users. It's not coming from, you know, we've got data that shows that it's not coming from private individuals. There's not a lot of people that drive, drive in central London from 10 miles away and need to rapid charge. Most of those people need to plug in and slow charge. Uh, in a car park or something like that. Um, so we're developing those. Um, so we'll certainly see more hub sites. Um, you'll see, you know, we've got motorway service area sites about to go live. So we've got three uh, three locations installed so far. Um, and, you know, and you'll see the continuation of the, of the 50 kilowatt network rolled out as well. Um, and as I say, we are 
we are trying to target sites where we can install more than say one 50 kilowatt charger at a time. Um, and, and you know, in many most cases, we're paying for new connections. So we're paying for the upgrade costs. We're paying for the, the power costs for those sites. We're not installing on an existing supply in most cases as well. If you look at where there has been mass deployment of rapid charging infrastructure, Ian Johnson, there is a trend. So if you look at the Marston's estate, if you look at the Morrison's estate, if you look at the BP fuel station estate, what Osprey and Genie Point and Chargemaster have done is they've deployed a vast number of chargers across single landowner estates. And that is where people like Marston's and, and Morrison's have the conviction to say, we're going to make a decision and we're going to go ahead of the market. We're going to have a rollout infrastructure strategy in our estate. In time, the rest of the UK's large retailers and landlords will make those same decisions. And you'll see a plethora of charges going in in every town and city across the UK. But the CPOs can't deploy charges where the landlords won't agree to a rollout campaign. Mm-hmm. I think the reality is that, I mean, I remember when, in, my, in the second half of 2018 and probably the first half of 2019, the conversations we were having with landlords and retailers and the presentations we were giving were all about why do we believe that this EV thing is going to happen? Now, after last summer, it felt as if many of the, the board executives across the land came back and they'd been on their summer travels, they'd seen EVs or they'd seen EV charging across, across Europe, and they came back and said, right, we need an EV strategy. Um, and what happened then is that most of these large companies, they probably started on an, an internal process of maybe a year's consultation of what is the right strategy for us. And the key question for them in that is, is this something we should own ourselves or should we work with a funder like Osprey? And that takes time for those businesses to do that analysis and to decide. And, and I think if anything, COVID has, has really raised sustainability and, and the electrification of transport up the corporate agenda. So there are many more businesses today taking the decision to roll out EV charging on their estates. And now you're going to start to see much bigger rollout. But we, we as I say, you know, none of us are making profit today. Uh, the, the more higher power charging sites, the more charges we install, the longer the payback period. So we can only really deploy this infrastructure where we know we have a security of tenure for a period of time. And, and therefore, you need a, a landlord that's going to give you that security of tenure. So for us, there's, there's two things. We need the, the landlords and the retailers in the UK to almost stop doing the consultancy projects now and to make a decision and get on with rolling out infrastructure, working with the CPO to do that. But the other thing we need is we need the local authorities to just run tenders. And I think one of the things things that's really interesting is if you look at the OLEV funding, um, I actually think it's complicated and slowed down the deployment of charging because as a council, you're sat there that you know that there's a high chance you'll be criticised if you make a mistake on the procurement route and then you've got this OLEV funding available to you. So you want a partner to come in and contribute or co-fund, but you don't want them to own at all. If anything, when the OLEV funding ends and now that the local authorities will simply just have to run a tender and pick which funding partner they want to work with, you're going to see a lot more activity. So much as we like to dump on charge point operators when we turn up at a charger and it's not working, or when we can't find a charger in a given area because none have been installed, it's always worth remembering that CPOs are a business and are looking to ensure that they can gain profitability as soon as possible. But they're also intent on installing charges in as many places as they can to make public charging as ubiquitous and easy as it can be. But every operator had to start somewhere. 
Ecotristi started at the motorway service areas but lost their advantage with old hardware and bad maintenance. Now they're coming back with multiple high power chargers at key motorway service areas across the country. Likewise, Polar put single chargers in wherever they could, but they're now looking at rolling out multiple high power chargers to all their BP owned filling stations across the country. On that subject, I wanted to know about how BP Chargemaster were able to put charges in at the BP owned and operated motorway service areas, given the Ecotristi monopoly. Tom was unable and or unwilling to talk about the details of the monopoly in a public forum. But I did ask him if it is their intention to put high power charges in all BP owned and operated motorway service areas. So, um, so in terms of our, our uh, sort of forecourt, so um, the, the three sites that I mentioned, with they're all company owned forecourts. So BP owns and operates those forecourts. Um, uh, there are you know about a third of BP's forecourts in the UK are company owned, company operated sites. Um, about two thirds of its forecourts are, are what is called sort of dealer owned, dealer operated. So that means that it's effectively a franchise. Uh, it's effectively a sort of a, a dealer group, um, a bit like we have with car retailing, where you know, you have dealer groups that, that run car retailing operations, um, who, who run those sites. But they look, you know, they look and feel like a BP forecourt, but they are they are owned and operated by someone who isn't BP. Um, so at the moment, we are focusing on on starting with the company owned forecourts, um, but we are definitely looking at the the dealer estate. We've we've already got a dealer site live down in Kent in Tunbridge, um, and there there are other great dealer sites across the country. So. Um, as I say, any of the company-owned sites uh, across the UK that can have this technology, we, we will seek to deploy it. Um, other than that, you know, we will we will target other opportunities that we get to um, to put it in strategically important locations for sure. Um, but as I say, I, I think it's um, you know it's really important that, that people who are travelling long distances have have confidence that they can charge uh, you know wherever they need to go. Osprey also started small, but a large cash injection recently and links with companies such as Marston's, retail parks and local authorities such as Cardiff have also allowed them to roll out more and more charges. And they're aiming for double charges wherever possible. If you keep an eye on my Twitter stream, whenever CPOs tweet out about new charges anywhere in the UK, I tend to retweet that, and these tweets are getting more and more frequent. It can be concerning and annoying when another new charger goes in or near London or Manchester, and Mid Wales is still sitting there with the one lonely Polar 50 kilowatt charger. I understand that. But this is the real life situation. CPOs will get around to it. But nobody's going to put an expensive charger in a place which might get two or three charges a day when there are sites that need charges that will get 30 plus usages a day. When those locations are done, the other locations will catch up. Remember, fossil fuel used to be dispensed in glass bottles from pharmacies before petrol stations became a thing. You can bet that places like central London were the first to get those too. Just in closing, I had intended to have two further charge point operators on the show today to add some alternate points of view. Unfortunately, due to timing and a little internal politicking, we weren't able to get this organised in time for this episode. The good news is that this means we will have a revisit of this discussion with the two further charge point operators sometime in the early 2021, so stay tuned for that. Many, many thanks to Ian Johnson from Osprey Charging and Tom Callow from BB Chargemaster for speaking with me for this episode. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. EV and renewable advocates talk about second life batteries all the time. These are batteries which are taken from EVs and repurposed for things such as home storage. Ironically, there is another use for them. As vehicle batteries. A company called Muxang creates add-on battery extender packs to increase the range of smaller battery cars. 
In this case, they use batteries salvaged from plug-in hybrids which have been scrapped or written off. A typical example could be a Nissan LEAF 24kWh vehicle with a range of around 80 miles, which can have an extender pack added and increase that to well over 120 miles. James Coates from James & Kate got together with Matt Cleveley from Cleveley EVs recently to add an extender pack to a Nissan LEAF. It isn't cheap, a Muxan charge between €3,990 and €5,990 depending on how big an extended battery you want, 8.8kWh or 17.6kWh, and they recommend upgrading the onboard charger to enable quicker charging. But for those of you who love your LEAF and want it to go that little bit further, this is definitely something worth checking out. The new battery pack is located in the underboot area and will obviously decrease your boot space. It adds about 160 kilos to the overall weight of the car, but it does also have beneficial effects for existing battery life as it mitigates heat transfer in the main pack. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Many, many thanks to my discussion partners today, Ian Johnston from Osprey Charging and Tom Callow from BP Chargemaster. It's obvious from this discussion that even though they are competitors in the same market, they realise that it's a huge market and they want to provide reliable, plentiful charging for EV users. Thank you. If you want to contact me, please use the EV Musings Twitter account, Musings EV, or I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called, So, You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library. Please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, he likes to get the best deal whenever he renews his phone. Says that these all-in-one deals are worthless. He likes to buy the phone outright, then get a cheap SIM to use to allow him to make the odd call here and there. That this is a pay-as-you-go price. I'm an, I'm an anonymous customer. I'm not signing up here. Um, and I, I choose to engage on this basis because I only intend to use this infrastructure occasionally. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.